One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On July 8, 1926, 35 year old evangelist Amy Semple McPherson traveled with an escort of three sheriff's deputies to the Los Angeles Hall of Justice. She'd been called here by the district attorney, supposedly to testify before a grand jury about her recent kidnapping. But Amy knew there was more to the summons than that. For weeks, the press had been hinting that her abduction was a hoax. And based on all the questions she'd been getting from investigators, Amy was certain the police agreed. That meant she had to convince them otherwise. And if there was one thing the veteran preacher excelled at, it was the art of persuasion. Amy's escorts pulled up to the curb. As her car stopped behind them, a cheer erupted. Hundreds of Amy's followers stood before the entrance to the government building, waving Bibles and calling, Hallelujah! And they weren't the only onlookers. Crowds of other spectators clamored on the sidewalks and shouted from open windows in the nearby high-rises. Thousands craned their necks in hopes of catching a glimpse of the world-famous evangelist. They would not be disappointed. Amy stepped out of the car. Her pure white skirt brushed against the pavement. Her blue cape billowed in the breeze. Escorted by police, her attorneys, and a guard of seven female followers dressed exactly like her, she made her way through the screaming crowds. Journalists surged forward, snapping photos and shouting for a quote. Amy glided past them. Flanked by her guard of seven women, she proceeded toward the granite building. This wasn't a testimony. It was a battle with the devil. And Amy Semple McPherson was in it to win. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We also cover the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and what the human brain does when held captive. We're your hosts. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored the story of famous evangelist Amy Semple McPherson. In May 1926, Amy's disappearance created a national media frenzy. When she turned up five weeks later, she told police and the press she'd been kidnapped. But to her surprise, many didn't believe her. This week, we'll see how Amy and her mother were accused of perjury about the abduction and the not-so-holy tactics they used to clear their names. We'll also explore how the evangelist transformed 
as she struggled through what might have been a hell of her own making. On June 24, 1926, Amy Semple McPherson lay in a hospital bed in Douglas, Arizona. She'd been hounded relentlessly by journalists during the hours since escaping captivity. At first, she thought, the reporters were all on her side. But after reading the first stories in the papers, she realized that many considered her kidnapping a hoax. This came as a shock to the 35-year-old preacher Not only had she always enjoyed good relations with the press, she'd excelled at winning people over with stories her entire life. This was the first time in recent memory her listeners hadn't believed her. And she needed to find a way to fix that fast. As Amy considered her options, she heard a group of people approaching. Instinctively, she propped herself up to meet more journalists. But as the visitors drew near, she realized that she recognized the footsteps. It was her mother, Minnie, and her children, 15-year-old Roberta and 13-year-old Rolf. The moment they entered her room, Amy embraced them all and burst into tears. Minnie was crying too, but she didn't look relieved so much as worried. And within seconds, Amy recognized why. Two men in suits followed her family into the hospital room. They introduced themselves as Los Angeles Chief of Detectives Herman Klein and Assistant Deputy District Attorney Joseph Ryan. They were here to ask her questions about the kidnapping. After all the rumors in the press, Amy realized they might not believe her. So with her mother and children looking on, she told the story again just like she had to reporters, but with greater animation. Captain Klein and ADA Ryan interjected questions throughout the performance, asking what her kidnappers, Steve and Rose, looked like, what kind of anesthetic they might have used, and how Amy escaped from the shack after cutting her bonds. Amy responded to these questions as if she were telling them about a party. She was aiming to charm the men by being pleasant, But in fact, her attitude might have piqued their suspicion. According to the American Psychological Association, people who have been kidnapped often undergo sensory overload after being reintroduced to society. They have trouble processing information and may feel uncomfortable when asked to relive the experience. Amy appeared to have no such problems. She looked pale and thin in her hospital bed but she projected the same persona she'd been famous for before her disappearance. As a result, the men couldn't help but wonder about the veracity of her claims. They also had questions about the content of her story. Ryan pointed out that several details she'd mentioned aligned almost perfectly with the ransom letters Minnie had received. For example, Amy said she'd been lured away from the beach by two people pretending to have a sick baby. The notes from the alleged kidnappers said the same thing. They also mentioned drugging Amy and shoving her into a car. In Ryan's experience, criminals didn't often recount the details of their felonies in writing. So it was odd that Amy's kidnappers had done so. It was also strange how closely their descriptions matched hers sometimes down to the exact wording. It was almost as if she'd seen the ransom notes before they were mailed. 
Amy insisted she knew nothing about the letters, and for the moment, Ryan let the matter drop. This gave the evangelist the impression that she'd won her inquisitors over. But Minnie had watched the whole exchange from a chair in her daughter's bedside, and she was convinced that there was more trouble to come. At first, it seemed Minnie couldn't be more wrong. When the family returned to Los Angeles by train, only two days later, they were greeted by a jubilant throng of over 30,000 people. Amy was hoisted into a chair and carried on the shoulders of four firefighters through the crowd, while adoring citizens showered her with roses. After transferring to a car, Amy and her family joined a parade in her honor that wound all through downtown Los Angeles. Over 100,000 people joined the celebration. They included mounted officers, firefighters, and thousands of temple followers sporting the same white dress and blue cape Amy often wore to preach. Even the press was obliged to interpret the event in Amy's favor. One writer from the LA Examiner conceded, there seem few adjectives powerful enough to adequately visualize this homecoming. The question of what had really happened to Amy was forgotten in the fanfare of her glorious return. And for the moment, Amy almost seemed to forget about it herself. When she arrived back at the Angelus Temple, she found 5,000 people waiting on the street. She shouted joyously that she loved them and praised the Lord. Then she proceeded into the temple, where nearly 6,000 more awaited her. Despite her five-week ordeal, Amy couldn't resist the draw of an adoring crowd. She shouted and sang with her congregation. Then she acted out the tale of her kidnapping with even greater animation than she'd shown at the hospital two days before. Following the performance, she asked the crowd to raise their hands if they believed her story. Nearly every hand in the room shot up. So far, so good. But Amy couldn't rely on the faith of her followers alone. She needed to convince the naysayers, including the press and the men in charge of the investigation. That evening, she rode with Captain Klein and ADA Ryan to the beach to show them step-by-step step how she'd been abducted. In the process, she collected a crowd of journalists and admirers, most of whom wanted to hear her tell the kidnapping story in person. She obliged them over and over. At last, she went to bed, exhausted, but feeling that her work was well done. The next morning, however, she woke to an unpleasant start. The papers were still casting aspersions on her character. Even worse, her old detractor, evangelist fighting Bob Schuler, was calling for a full investigation into the kidnapping, not to find the abductors, but to incriminate Amy herself. Amy was indignant. What did she have to do to convince these people? Minnie, on the other hand, saw her own prediction coming true. A preacher's word was clearly no longer enough to keep Satan's subjects at bay. They wanted tangible proof. So Amy and Minnie would have to provide it for them. With this goal in mind, on June 30th, 1926, they slipped out of the parsonage and boarded a train to Douglas, Arizona, where Amy had left the hospital only a few days before. 
There, they were met by a crowd of reporters who'd heard about their journey en route. For perhaps the first time ever, Amy refused to give the journalists a comment. Amy and Minnie traveled south across the border to Agua Prieta, the Mexican town where Amy had found refuge only a week before. They searched the region for almost 10 hours, looking for a shack that matched her descriptions. Sadly, no such hovel could be found. Amy and Minnie returned to their hotel that night frustrated and exhausted, and they found more bad news awaiting them. Back in Los Angeles, a grand jury had been convened to look into the kidnapping. Minnie was certain that catching the abductors wasn't what the grand jury had in mind. They were investigating Amy, and that meant the church was under fire. Their best defense was to refuse to testify. Amy disagreed. Why should she be afraid to tell her story? After all, the Lord was on their side. With the help of those who loved her, many first and foremost, the evangelist would meet her detractors head on. The hearing began on July 8, 1926. That morning, Amy dressed in her traditional white gown and blue cape at the parsonage. She then took a car from the Angelus Temple in Echo Park to the Hall of Justice just a few miles away. When she exited the car, she heard hundreds of church members crying hallelujah. Their presence raised her spirits, as did that of her seven followers dressed exactly like her. The guard, as she called the women, formed a V-shaped phalanx behind her as Amy made her way into the building. Inside, the crowds did not abate. Throngs of people clamored in the halls, vying for a glimpse of the celebrity preacher. Amy passed among them like Jesus on Palm Sunday, her people trailing faithfully behind her. Finally, they reached the grand jury room. Amy took leave of the loyal seven, commenting loudly enough for reporters to hear that she was a lamb being led to the slaughter. Then she walked into the chamber alone. ADA Joseph Ryan awaited her. So did his boss, District Attorney Asa Keys. Keys asked Amy to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amy swore that she would. Then the proceedings began. A grand jury is a group of people who decide if there is enough evidence to bring a criminal matter to trial. In Amy's case, the jury was composed of 17 men and two women. Their stated goal was to determine whether her kidnappers should be indicted. Amy prayed that they would do so. Every day, she sat and watched as witnesses, her mother among them, were called to speak on some aspect of her story. And every night, she went back to the temple and broadcast on the radio what she had seen. This allowed her to report the proceedings from her own point of view and to her own advantage. But despite her attempts to shape the narrative, Amy couldn't control the evidence. Little details caused major problems for the evangelist as she attempted to promote her story. For instance, a photo taken while Amy was in the hospital in Douglas showed her wearing a wristwatch. District Attorney Keyes raised the question of where the timepiece had come from. Had Amy been wearing it while she was swimming at Venice Beach? Or had the kidnappers given it to her? Similarly, Keyes wanted to know about the evangelist's clothing. 
She'd said she was wearing a bathing suit when abducted, yet when she escaped, she had on a nice new-looking dress and corset. How did the kidnappers know what kind of lingerie she wore? Amy responded to this and many other such questions in a variety of ways. Sometimes she refuted a statement or made jokes. Mostly, however, she just shrugged. Despite her status as a world-renowned spiritual leader, she played the role of a helpless and forgetful little woman. Finally, after about two weeks of testimony, Amy had a chance to tell her own story. This was the moment she'd been waiting for. The 35-year-old stood before the jury and preached, not about the kidnapping, but about her life. Those who questioned the abduction should know this about her. Amy had been born with nothing. A penniless, widowed mother at the age of 19, she had heeded God's call to preach his word despite having nowhere to lay her head. She traveled for years with her mother to raise the funds to build this church, which now had several hundred thousand believers. Why would she choose to leave in the moment when her work was finally coming to fruition? It was impossible, she concluded. No sane person would walk away from that. Therefore, her tale about the kidnapping must be true. So people should stop questioning her story and devote their efforts instead to finding her abductors. This was a powerful argument, and it might have brought Amy's PR problems to an end if a witness hadn't chosen this particular moment to come forward. It was July 22nd, three weeks after the hearing began. In Monterey, California, five hours north of Los Angeles and about a thousand miles from the mythical Mexican shack, a woman walked into a police station. She told officers that she knew where Amy had been the 11 days following her disappearance, and it wasn't in the company of kidnappers. Instead, Amy had been at the romantic seaside resort of Carmel, California, together with her former sound engineer, Kenneth Ormiston. Coming up, We'll see how charges of a romantic interlude led to a warrant for the evangelist's arrest and her mother's. Now, back to the story. During the first few weeks of July 1926, Amy Semple McPherson took part in a grand jury investigation into her alleged kidnapping. Her mother, Minnie, also testified in an attempt to back up her daughter's claims. But on July 22nd, a surprise witness from Carmel blew their story to pieces. The witness told an officer about a man she knew in Carmel who had rented a bungalow to a mysterious couple back in May. The renter said their names were Mr. and Mrs. McIntyre. However, several people in the neighborhood later recognized them from the papers as Kenneth Ormiston and Amy Semple McPherson. The police officer was stunned by these allegations. He called the L.A. district attorney, who sent ADA Joseph Ryan to investigate. Dogged by reporters, Ryan took a train up to Monterey and then traveled to Carmel to meet the owner of the bungalow. Much to his delight, the landlord confirmed the woman's story. 
he told Ryan that the mystery couple had arrived at about 4 a.m. on May 19th, the day after Amy disappeared from Venice Beach. He said the woman was heavily disguised in a bucket hat and dark glasses, but he got a good look at the man and definitely recognized him in later photos. Ryan asked how he knew the woman with Ormiston was Amy, given that she was wearing a disguise. The landlord provided multiple clues. First, several people in the neighborhood had seen her without the hat and identified her as the evangelist. Second, the couple had left a slip of paper behind, a handwritten grocery list, which Ryan compared to a sample of Amy's writing. To him, it looked like a perfect match. Thrilled with the fine, Ryan wired his boss, District Attorney Keyes, and said he had proof that Amy had run away with the sound engineer. Extra, extra, read all about it. Within 24 hours, papers across the country were blazing with the news. The LA Examiner, owned by media mogul William Randolph Hearst, shouted the headline, New Sensation in Amy Inquiry. Amy and Minnie were united in their response. The story was a lie. Amy was not now, nor had she ever been, involved with Kenneth Ormiston. And she could not possibly have been in Carmel for the simple reason that she was being held hostage at the time. Part of this could have been verified by Ormiston himself, but unfortunately for Amy, he was in the wind. Since leaving the cottage abruptly with the mystery woman on May 29th, he'd been spotted alone in various locations around the country, but by now, no one in LA seemed to know where he was. Amy's only hope, as she told reporters, was that the true mystery woman would come forward. And on July 31st, she seemed to get an answer to her prayers. That day, a woman in her 30s who greatly resembled Amy in appearance presented herself at the Angelus Temple. She said her name was Lorraine Wiseman Seeloff and declared that Kenneth's lover was actually her twin sister. Lorraine told Amy's attorney and a slew of reporters who just happened to be present that she had tried to present this evidence to the DA, but he had ignored her. So she had no choice but to come to the temple directly. She believed Amy had been kidnapped and wanted to clear her name. To that end, she produced an affidavit from her sister, confessing to the affair. Well, the newspapers eagerly printed Lorraine's story. This gave Amy a much needed PR boost and a chance for her and Minnie to divert their attention elsewhere. Currently, they were negotiating with a Long Beach attorney named R.A. McKinley to perform specialized legal tasks. And in late July or early August, they hired him for the job of establishing contact with Amy's kidnappers. There was one minor problem with this idea. McKinley didn't believe that Steve and Rose really existed but he had the impression that no one expected him to. This made his job considerably easier. Together with his assistant, McKinley drove over to the docks in San Pedro and found a worker who wanted to make a few bucks. They made him up to fit Amy's description of her male kidnapper, took several photos, and sent them to the parsonage. Amy instantly identified the man as her abductor. According to psychologists David A. Alexander and Susan Klein, 
A common psychological effect of being a hostage is impaired memory. If Amy really was kidnapped, it's possible that she might have simply misremembered what her abductors looked like. On the other hand, if her story was a lie, she might have been shrewdly using McKinley to help substantiate it. Either way, she and Minnie were happy enough with the lawyer's work to hire him for a second task, finding the shack Amy had described near Agua Prieta. This would have been conclusive proof of the evangelist's story. But unfortunately for her and McKinley both, he never made it across the border. On August 25th, he was killed in a car accident, leaving the women at the temple without a worldly savior. And there was more bad news to come. Two weeks later, on September 10th, Lorraine Wiseman, the woman with the convenient twin sister, was arrested for writing bad checks. Lorraine immediately contacted Amy and Minnie asking for bail, but the women decided not to respond. This turned out to be the wrong move. Lorraine was furious. On September 12th, she retracted the story about her sister being Kenneth's lover. She told reporters that Amy and Minnie had bribed her to lie to the press. This meant the evangelist could have been the woman in Carmel after all. Up to now, the rumors about Amy had been little more than reputation-damaging gossip. But with Lorraine's confession, the evangelist and her mother now appeared to have committed a crime. On Thursday, September 16, 1926, District Attorney Keyes issued warrants for Amy's and Minnie's arrest, charging them with perjury and corruption of public morals. Amy was shattered by the news. She cried herself sick, sobbing that her enemies had crucified her and she was about to go to prison. Minnie did everything she could to comfort her daughter, while at the same time hardening her resolve. The next day, she posted bail for both of them and shouted to reporters, this work will go on. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Minnie probably meant these words as a simple publicity statement, but some of Amy's followers took them as a call to arms. During the next three months, as she and Minnie fought criminal charges in the Hall of Justice, some of their supporters began to take action. Keyes and Ryan received multiple death threats. The DA surrounded his home with an armed guard. At least two people speaking against Amy in the street were shot in the back. Their assailants were never found. Meanwhile, Amy continued to pray for a way out of her troubles. She no longer had to pretend to be a fragile woman. She was completely exhausted in body and soul. Some days she had to be carried into the grand jury room in a chair because she couldn't walk. At last, after about two months of testimony, Amy found the answer to her prayers and her problems. It came in the form of a newspaper man. Ralph Jordan, a reporter from The Examiner, knew Amy needed evidence that would help her escape the charges and he believed he had exactly what the evangelist ordered. Ralph's boss was news baron William Randolph Hearst. Hearst owned not only the Examiner, but also dozens of other media outlets, as well as real estate across the country. 
He was extremely wealthy and influential with powerful friends. According to Ralph, the mogul also had a nasty temper. Back in 1924, Hearst had thrown a party on his yacht for a crowd of Hollywood elite. After several glasses of champagne, Hearst accused one of the attendees of making advances on his wife. He reportedly pulled a gun on the partygoer in a drunken rage and shot at him. But he missed, hitting movie producer Thomas Ince instead. Ince died a few days later. The doctors claimed he died of heart failure. In earlier days, Amy might have responded to this jaw-dropping revelation by praying for the news baron, but the experiences of the past few months had changed her. In December of 1926, she sent a message to Hearst informing him that she'd heard about the shooting. The rumor could destroy his empire, just as the Carmel story threatened to do to Amy's. She was willing to protect the media mogul's reputation if, and only if, he would help defend hers. Hearst's response to the evangelist's blackmail is now lost to history, but its effects began to appear almost immediately. On December 29th, District Attorney Keyes announced that his star witness, Lorraine Wiseman Selaf, was actually unreliable. Attorneys had learned she had a history of pathological lying. As a result, he could no longer treat her testimony about the bribery as fact. The rest of the DA's case against Amy and Minnie crumbled soon after. On January 10th, Keyes officially dropped the charges against them. Amy was jubilant. That night, the temple filled to overflowing. Thousands of followers cheered themselves hoarse as their beloved leader once again took the stage. Minnie stood by with a heavy heart. She knew that when battling the devil, one sometimes had to embrace the adversary's tactics. But in these last few weeks, she felt that Amy had taken things too far, and she was about to reach a point of no return. Coming up, we'll explore how the stress from her ordeal radically altered Amy's behavior and why her mother finally decided to move on. Now, back to the story. For the final six months of 1926, Evangelist Amy Semple McPherson and her mother, Minnie Kennedy, were beset with legal troubles. Accused of perjury and corruption of public morals, they took desperate measures to make the accusations disappear. At last, on January 10th, 1927, the district attorney dropped the charges against them. After giving a victory speech at the temple that night, Amy went home to finish packing for the road. She'd been so stressed out for the past few months that she'd been physically sick. She'd been thinking almost nonstop about the day she'd be free again. And now that that time had come, she wanted to go on a national tour to reclaim her former glory as a traveling evangelist. Minnie couldn't believe she was even considering it. The church had been in limbo for more than six months. They wanted their leader back. And there were bigger concerns. Amy might have managed to get the charges dismissed, but she hadn't been fully exonerated. Because of this, some people in the temple still questioned her story. 
Others were whispering about her new companion, Ralph Jordan, the newspaper man who had given her the scoop on William Randolph Hearst. Not only was Amy planning to go on tour, she intended to take Ralph with her. When Minnie pointed out that this wasn't a good look for the evangelist, Amy blew her off. Ralph had to go along because he was her new publicity manager. To Minnie, this revelation was a slap in the face. For 36 years, she had always been the one her daughter turned to for advice. Now, after Minnie had put her own reputation on the line to defend her, Amy was throwing her over for yet another man. She begged her daughter to reconsider, but Amy was determined to get away. She needed to shake off the memories of the last few months and start fresh. So on January 11th, 1927, Amy waved a happy goodbye to her family and followers. Together with her newspaper man and a couple other new friends, she set out on an 80-day cross-country journey she called her Vindication Tour. It was just like old times in some respects. She had supporters at her side. Large crowds greeted her wherever she went. Despite similar circumstances, however, the evangelist who appeared at these gatherings was a very different Amy. She was experimenting with new styles. After 12 years of preaching in a pure white gown and blue cape, she bought new, fashionable clothes. She bobbed her hair and started wearing makeup, two things she had often preached against in the past. Many liked this new side of the old-time evangelist, especially young, progressive women. Flappers idolized her. Hollywood started calling. Attracted by her fame and her evolving look, movie studios competed to sign her on to a long-term contract. In the past, Amy would have scorned such offers, but now she happily considered them. Some people saw these developments as evidence of Amy's true corrupt character, but there's another possible explanation, one that suggests her kidnapping story might have some truth to it after all. According to psychologists Ruth O. Beltran and Derek Silov, catastrophic experiences such as hostage situations sometimes lead to enduring personality change. Well, this may include feelings of anxiety, psychosomatic symptoms, and estrangement. Amy experienced crippling anxiety from time to time after her disappearance. It's possible that her sickness may have been psychosomatic. It is also plausible that once the ordeal was over, she no longer felt at home with family or her followers. Maybe she really was kidnapped and held for ransom. And maybe her decision to go on the road, changing her look and her beliefs while leaving longtime supporters behind, was an emotional reaction to the trauma she'd experienced. Well, then again, maybe her changes weren't the result of trauma at all. Maybe she had simply learned during the trial process that truth was far more flexible than she'd once believed. The public didn't care about facts. They just wanted a good story. Maybe she simply decided to give them one. Whatever the case, by the time she reached New York in mid-February, 
36-year-old Amy Semple McPherson seemed like a completely different person. She toured nightclubs, sometimes staying out until three in the morning. When two temple higher-ups went to visit her in the city, they found her basking in the company of Ralph Jordan and several other non-believers. This made many absolutely furious. It probably didn't help that while Amy was gallivanting in the Big Apple, she was stuck in LA running the business. By now, this included not only the temple, but also the radio station, the Bible school, the seminary, the charities, and the various church branches, which by now numbered in the hundreds. And she had to do all this while placating disgruntled followers. No one had joined this church to see Minnie or any of the other preachers who stepped in to help while her daughter was gone. They wanted Amy, and the longer she was out, the more the threat of dissent continued to rise. By the time Amy came back from her travels on April 1st, 1927, Minnie was steaming. Amy immediately sprang to her own defense. She called a meeting of the higher-ups and asked them to raise their hands if they approved of her leadership. All but two of the board members' hands went up. One of those who didn't was the church music director, Gladys Nichols, an important man in a temple where the choir had hundreds of members. The other was Minnie Kennedy. Amy already knew her mother was upset, so her no vote came as no surprise. But she was disappointed in Gladys's lack of support. And the next day, when he officially left the church, along with 300 members of the choir, she was devastated. Minnie failed to sympathize. The choir's departure was her daughter's fault. If she'd stayed and taken care of the management in the first place, it wouldn't have happened. She needed to stop being foolish and start acting like the spiritual leader Minnie had raised her to be. But Amy had her own vision of what an evangelist looked like, and she no longer wanted her mother's opinion. Shortly after the choir rebellion, she requested Minnie's official resignation. Minnie was heartbroken. For the past 13 years, the Foursquare Church had been her life. What would she do? Where would she go? Amy overcame her anger long enough to offer Minnie a solution. To the woman who had born and raised her, supported her financially and emotionally, taken up the cross when she vanished and handed it back when she suddenly reappeared, Amy offered a settlement of $200,000. Then she sent her mother on her way. At last, after 13 years, she was left to her own devices. The old Amy might have spent her liberty in prayer, but the new Amy continued her transformation by signing a contract with Universal Studios. As for Minnie, she took her 200 grand on the road. She became a traveling evangelist in her own right and although she admitted that her daughter had been far too close to Kenneth Ormiston, she continued to say Amy had been held hostage until her dying day. Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We'll be back next week with another episode. 
You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Hostage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Hostage was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. 